Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Christy Brown Montesano discusses Verdi's Aida, the music, the women, and the drama. See LA Opera's Aida at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from May 21st to June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Verdi's Aida, which celebrated its 150th birthday last year, has long been an audience favorite. And this is not least because of its potential for over-the-top spectacle in the tradition of 19th century French grand opera. And this is ramped up even more by a glistening veneer of exoticism, an imagined setting in ancient Egypt during the time of the pharaohs. For instance, the Triumphal March, one of Verdi's most famous instrumental excerpts, has traditionally accompanied an onstage pageant, not only of dozens of brightly costumed singers and dancers, but often live animals, people riding horses, sometimes elephants. But the dramatic heart of the opera, the element that most concerned Verdi, who expressed only tepid interest in the Egyptian setting, is a love story or more accurately speaking, competing love stories, romantic, filial, patriotic. The basic story elements came from a renowned French Egyptologist, Auguste Mariette, who happened to be in the service of the Khedive of Egypt, Ishmael Pasha, or Ishmael the Magnificent, as he liked to be known. He was the ruling governor of Egypt at the time. Now, Ishmael the Magnificent was a real spender. He liked to spend money. He wanted to remake Egypt. And he was also a huge opera fan, and especially of the works of Verdi. So in 1869, Ishmael the Magnificent commissioned Verdi to write a new opera with an Egyptian subject for the opening of the Cairo Opera House. In the end, he had to offer an exorbitant amount of money to convince a very skeptical and cranky Verdi to take the job. The composer worked with French librettist and theater manager Camille Dulocle. This had been Verdi's collaborator on Don Carlos, the opera he had just finished. And they worked together to shape Marietta's narrative into a suitable drama for musical setting. Aida opened in Cairo on Christmas Eve. 1871, but without the composer in attendance. Instead, Verdi waited to see his work produced in La Scala early the next year. Now, while Verdi did not write his own libretti, he generally played an important part in shaping the text. And in the case of Aida, he worked very closely with Dulocle, uh, micromanaging many of the details. Verdi is often characterized as the Shakespearean arm of romantic drama in contrast to the epic romanticism of Wagner. However, the setting of Aida is kind of unreal and, as I said, has this slightly colonialist exoticism behind it. It does show this Shakespearean tendency of Verdi, his investment in psychological realism and his skill at creating multidimensional characters. The fundamental dramatic thread of Aida is relatively easy to sum up. There are two countries at war, Egypt and Ethiopia. There is a Romeo and Juliet setup. Radames is the glorious military leader of Egypt, 
who has fallen in love with Aida, who is a person from the enemy territory, an Ethiopian. Aida also returns his passion. Amneris is an Egyptian princess who also is in love with Rodimus. You see where this is going. In fact, this is a double princess story for the daughter of the king of Ethiopia is Aida, though her true identity is unknown in Egypt, where she serves as a kind of lady's maid or personal assistant to Amneris. Both of these princesses love their countries. Both love Rodimus more. They seemingly respect and even have some cordial warmth to each other until they discover that they like the same guy. As the opera progresses, love proves both manipulative and self-sacrificing. Duty to father and country is often at odds with personal happiness. Okay, so I said it was relatively easy to sum up, but this is opera, so yeah. The basic elements of the story are not that different from other operas, particularly I, the ones that came to mind for me are Mozart's Idomeneo, or even more directly, Verdi's own Don Carlos. Still, in the characters of Aida, Radames, and Amneris in particular, Verdi gives the lovers triangle, I don't know, he gives it a depth and complexity that transcends the convention. And as in Don Carlos, he sets these very human creations against an inhuman structure of patriarchal authority, represented most strongly by some form of church and state. While Radames ultimately pays the price for betrayal of his country, the two women characters are the ones who offer the most profound musical dramatizations of the opera's central conflicts. Both Amneris and Aida have strong musical signatures and fascinating character arcs to explore. Verdi spotlights Princess Aida's primary theme in the opera's prelude. It's the very first melody we hear. And what begins as one of Verdi's trademark tender melodies in the high strings expands warmly all expressive appoggiaturas and evocative chromatic harmony. So let's listen to just the opening of that. Verdi sets this theme, Aida's theme, directly in juxtaposition and contrasting with 
a theme that signals the all-powerful Egyptian priests, a descending idea that plods with inexorable force until it clashes right up against Aida's melody, which now is ecstatic in its force. So let's listen to that continuation. returns in her first aria proper at the end of Act One when she explicitly articulates her divided sense of love and loyalty between Radames and her native land and people. Having echoed the Egyptian cries to Radames, ritorna vincitor, return as victor, against her own people, the Ethiopians, Aida now sits alone and condemns herself, saying, I uttered those terrible words. In this introductory Shana, she bitterly spells out what a victorious Radames would mean, namely the blood of her brothers, her father in chains. She appeals to her gods to destroy the Egyptian forces, to bring her back to her father's embrace. But then suddenly she cries out because she is caught by the other side of that fact. And she remembers the love that she, quote, welcomed like a ray of sunlight, end quote. And she connects this theme that we've heard in the prelude explicitly with her love, Aida in love with Radames. So let's listen to this cue. A similar thing happens in the Act Two duet between Aida and Amneris, when Amneris tries to wheedle the truth from Aida about her love for Radames. Amneris notes that the gods have turned against the Ethiopians, Aida's people, and adds rather manipulatively, oh, but there's a stronger god, love, who will offer you comfort. And at the word amore, love, 
Aida's melodic tell spills forth. She just can't hold it in. And, and this time the theme arrives in its most animated form yet, while Amniris bristles with jealousy. Here's an excerpt of this exchange, beginning with Amniris's talk of this stronger God. Once Amniris confirms the truth, she promises to make Aida's life miserable. But it is actually Aida's father that strikes a more fatal blow to the lover's future. And Aida's romantic devotion is unable to hold out against the call of filial love and duty. Captured by the Egyptians, King Amonasro conceals his identity and manages to speak with his daughter alone. At that point, he uses every tool of guilt possible to convince his daughter to put her homeland first, to make Radames flee with them. He also wants his daughter to get some information out of her lover. And Aida naively imagines that the info that her father wants is meant to help them escape, basically where troop movements in a sense. But King Amanasro plans to use it as a military advantage. Aida reveals a very different side of her musical self when she has to try to convince Radames to abandon his home for a place beside her in Ethiopia. And a vaguely exotic plaintive oboe melody introduces Aida, who then sings in a much huskier mid-range, urges Radames to leave with her, to escape the parched lands around them. She then evokes the sensual delights of her home, Ethiopia, and by extension, the sensual delights of being her lover, through a chromatic melody that sometimes glides on rootless parallel chords in the most bewitching way.
Rita is homesick. She doesn't want to disobey her father. And she wants to be with Rodimus. And in following her father's orders, she basically inadvertently leads Rodimus into a charge of treason. The next time we see the lovers together will be in the tomb where they are to be buried alive. Aida has chosen to join her lover in his death sentence, a fact known only to him, actually, since she stuck into the tomb before he arrived uh, while he was under arrest and then judged. She's driven by both love and quite likely some sense of atonement because she also played a part in the trajectory and in his arriving at the sentencing of treason, even though it was unintentional. Her naivete made her believe that her father's intentions were good, that he actually just wanted them to escape. It's actually a a horrible idea to contemplate being buried alive, slowly suffocated as oxygen depletes. Initially, Rodimus bravely tries to move stones. You know, he's looking for some way out that some way that heroism might still win. But it is Aida who changes the tone of the scene from something frightening and ghastly to a kind of peace, maybe even a hopefulness, an anticipation of a place where the demands of terrestrial authorities and terms will have no hold, a place where they can be free to love each other. So it is Aida who introduces the heartbreakingly beautiful Oterra Adio. And she sings, O earth, farewell, farewell, veil of tears, dream of joy which vanished into sorrow. Heaven opens to us, our wandering souls fly fast towards the light of eternal day. So let's listen to that glorious melody, O terra. so it ends the story of angel-voiced Aida. But what of Amdiris? It is so easy to fall into good girl, bad girl dichotomies in opera, but Verdi and his librettists were often sympathetic to these rejected and or traumatized mezzo roles like Azucena, Elio, and Amdiris. I might go so far as to say that Amneris is musically and dramatically 
more interesting than either Aida or Radames. I'm sure people would disagree with me, but she occasionally falls into the cliche jealous harpy now and again. But her overall psychological journey is very nuanced. We first meet her early in Act One when she approaches Radames. Her vocal line is pretty, but a little formal. It is the more graceful and expressive orchestral melody that communicates something warmer, an ardent longing that's underneath her exterior pleasantries. Amnira suspects that it's her servant, Aida, who has captured the heart of Radames. She pretty quickly transforms into the typical jealous woman type, directing all of her venom towards the other woman. But even so, most of Amnira's music is connected to her own longing her own kind of struggle about her feelings for Radames. She prays about it. She pleads for it. She goes to the priest for help with it. Act two opens with Amneris in her private chambers and her ladies are trying to entertain her, distract her, but she cannot break away from this obsession. She continues to repeat, oh, come my love, bring madness and blessed peace to my heart. And it's interesting that juxtaposition between madness and peace as the experience of her love, of what she thinks it means. And, and those two ideas will, will come back at the end of the opera as she struggles again with this madness and peace that is love. Amneris also opens the final act of the opera. At the beginning of her Shana, she's raging. You get the feeling that it's Anger at Aida because Aida has escaped, terror and rage at the fact that Radames is on trial for treason, and also inwardly directed rage because she blames herself. And Verdi's deft writing for the orchestra really enhances the effect of this opening, which is, I mean, there's a vocal quality uh, to her emotion, but the, the orchestra just enhances that, brings out the terror and anger that go knowing that her lover may die and feeling that she's responsible. So let's listen to the, the opening here of act four, where Amneris is contemplating her situation. Por 
So we see that the agitation and the anger, but eventually Amneris softens under love's irresistible force. And, and she actually says the words, I love him. I will always love him. Desperate, insane. So there's this madness again, and this love will kill me. And it's at this moment when she's, announces this like this is just the fact i i will always love him that we hear again her initial musical theme the one we heard in the first time she addresses radamus with the orchestra's sensual kind of middle range string arabesques <laughs> So a very different Amneris there, as she recalls this. There's a duet that follows. Amneris lays bare her soul to Radames. She's trying to convince him to stay with her and she will save him. She says, my country, my throne, my life, I will give it all up for you. She's willing even now to say, I will take you, I will save your life as long as you give up Aida, which of course he refuses to do. And this makes her furious. But at the same time, when Radames says, you took my love away from me, you know, you, you killed her. She's quick to say, no, I, I didn't kill Aida. She's still alive. She, she escaped during the fighting, but no one knows where. She could have actually said, well, she died or come up, you know, continued. But she wants to be clear that, that that's not what she did. She didn't try to have Aida killed or she wouldn't rejoice at that. Amneris doesn't fit easy categories. And when the guards take Radames away to be judged by the priests, Amneris curses her own jealousy specifically. And she is the one also to call out, in a sense, I mean, arguably the true enemies of love and peace in the opera, namely the priests who decree all, even steering the will of the king. And she, she says, ah, there they are, the pitiless ministers of death. Oh, may I not see them, these white-robed ghouls. And she adds, I myself, io stesso, put him in their clutches. Io stesso, I put them, I, I did it. And her condemnation of the priests and herself is such a powerful moment, um, which is underpinned by a version of the descending theme associated with the priests that we first heard 
juxtaposed um, with Aida's theme in the prelude. So let's listen to that moment where Amneris condemns the priests and also herself. <laughs> The final tomb scene, which we've talked about earlier, was actually, it was a split scene setup that apparently was Verdi's idea so that we could experience both Aida and Rodimus's fatal reunion and Amneris's final plea above them. I remember this particular scene from my first encounter with Aida back in my student days, very long time ago, listening to an LP recording. I was entranced, of course, by the heavenly vocal lines of the two lovers, Rodimus and Aida, singing farewell to the world while buried alive in a sealed tomb. That was very striking. It's, it kind of sticks with you. But it was Amneris's simple, heartbreaking prayer above ground, her, her deep mezzo-soprano intoning, pace, ti imploro, pace, peace, I beg of you, peace. She is, of course, begging forgiveness for having betrayed Rodamus to the priests. She may even be laying down her hatred against Aida, but I find that her call rings even more poignantly if we understand it as transcending the immediate lover's triangle. Pace, ti imploro, I, I beg of peace from you. And war has been at the center of the drama. War as an insatiable grab for power and domination over other human beings is what really drives this tragedy and frankly, other tragedies to this very day. I can't believe it was an accident that Verdi let Amneris's voice be the last one that we hear, that intonation of pace timploro. I don't want to play it because I'm hoping that you will all go. And I think that that is such a powerful, magical in a way that I can't explain, sad, but just incredibly moving scene 
to experience live and I hope you all will. Thank you for joining me today and for learning something I hope about these two extraordinary female characters and Verdi's uncanny ability to bring them to life. See LA Opera's Aida at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from May 21st to June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>